so I'm going to lead off. I'll be our lead off hitter today. Uh, and then uh, Jeremy's going to read a little section from our book. But I thought I would go back and talk a little bit about um, how this project started for us. Um, when you think about the great traditions in baseball, Montana is probably not top of mind. The Treasure State is far from a hotbed of major league talent because ball fields are typically under snow when pitchers and catchers report to spring training in Florida and Arizona every year. And our fields are often, often remain buried well into the first months of the Major League Baseball season. This sort of geographic disadvantage is part of the reason so few players jump from big sky country to the Major Leagues, 22 over the last 143 years. Or why former Major Leaguers retired to this remote part of the Northwest. We're not exactly California, which has sent more than 2,000 players to the big leagues over that, same, over that same time period, nor is Montana the Dominican Republic, which is almost 10 times smaller than Montana, but home to more than 600 big league ball players. In fact, when a baseball website called flipflopflying.com researched the American town farthest from a major league baseball team, that led to Turner, Montana. Population 192, situated about four hours north of Great Falls. But if you're a true baseball fan, you know the game's deep history has a way of finding its way to every corner of the country, no matter how unpopulated or cold or far away it is from a big league team. This book started with Jeremy sifting through old bios and box scores, reading obituaries and news clippings. It led the two of us eventually to interviewing historians and ball players and surviving relatives who were even more enamored with the national pastime than we are. And that's saying something. And we quickly found not only a community of dedicated seam heads and fellow researchers, but also a veritable trove of stories that connected Montana to Major League Baseball. We found bona fide superstars and spectacular flameouts, community pillars and small town footnotes. There are storybook stare-downs with Babe Ruth, comical run-ins with Honus Wagner, and battles with Cy Young. There are threads to Montana's cornerstone industries, their booms and busts, as well as lasting legacies in the form of dedicated landmarks. There are nicknames like Doc, Dad, Buddy, and Big Sur. There are controversies, and there are frauds. There are record breakers and career records. There are game changers, both on the field and off. There's also a decorated umpire still in the league, a long-tenured manager about to win the American League East, John Gibbons, born in Great Falls, and one of the game's few professional female players who came from Montana. But back at the beginning, there's a kid nicknamed Brownie. The first Montana native to make it to the majors did so in a way it would make his home state proud. Players called him loyal and hardworking. Beat writers respected him. The owner of one of the original professional franchises considered him a trusted friend and confidant. He was so admired in the game, he ended up meeting three different presidents during the course of his career. Theodore Roosevelt before a game in 1910, William Howard Taft during a campaign stop in 1912, and with Woodrow Wilson in the White House over a casual conversation about baseball in October 1913. Never mind that Frank James Burke, 
most often referred to as Brownie, and best known for standing just four feet, seven inches tall, served as a mascot. <laughs> Despite his small stature, the Marysville, Montana native, pictured here in the center on the lap of a player, the Marysville, Montana native ended up making a big impact on our national pastime. Born in 1893, less than four years after Montana achieved statehood, he was the fourth of the eight children in a large Irish-American family. His father worked as a carpenter and his mother as a housewife, but the community of Marysville revolved around the gold and silver-rich Drumlumen mine. When the mine started to dry up, the family moved to Helena, where Burke thrived. According to his biography by the Society of American Baseball Research, known as Sabre, Burke quote, managed the roots of two competing Helena Daily newspapers, and once, when a popular play arrived in town, he purchased all of the tickets to then resell them at a profit. As an 11-year-old in 1905, he began the first of at least four winters as a page in the Montana State Senate. He also served as a drum major in Butte's celebrated Boston and Montana band, with which he traveled throughout the West to perform in competitions. In 1909, the precocious Brownie Burke was working as a bellhop at West Yellowstone's Mammoth Hot Springs Hotel when he caught the eye of Cincinnati Reds president August Gary Herman, pictured on your right. He looks like a pleasant fellow. <laughs> Impressed by the lad's outgoing, confident demeanor, Herman offered Burke the role of continual mascot with the Cincinnati Reds, contingent upon parental approval, of course. Brownie wrote his mother, obtained her blessing, and then traveled eastward to catch up with the Herman party in Chicago. And on August 3rd, 1909, owner and mascot arrived in Cincinnati. According to a story... Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Wrong room. <laughs> According to a story in the Cincinnati Post, Burke, just 16 at the time, made his on-field debut just five days later. At the time, it wasn't unusual for baseball teams to employ men of, small men of small stature as mascots. It'd be unthinkably crude by today's standards, but back then, it stemmed from the antiquated belief that midgets and dwarfs, as they were known, brought good luck. Philadelphia Athletics manager Connie Mack, who won more games than anyone else in the history of baseball, hired Louis Van Zelst, pictured in the middle here, <clears throat> in 1910 to be his team's mascot. Matt later credited the hunchback dwarf with helping his team's rise to prominence. Players would rub their bats against Van Zelsen's hump to help break the slump. Quote, left-handers, hunchbacks, and cross-eyed people were all considered lucky, wrote Harold Seymour in the golden age of baseball. Touching a hunchback was popularly believed to bring good luck. But here's the thing, mascots like Van Zelst and Burke became more than just superstitious sideshows. Burke worked more as a bat boy than, as Sabre put it, quote, a magical charm. He suited up for each game, delivered fresh balls between innings to the umpires, <clears throat> and organized equipment for the Reds players. Before her July 24, 1912 game, he actually helped Cincinnati pitcher Frank Smith warm up. The Cincinnati Post reported the next day that Brownie couldn't quite handle Smith's spitter, much to the amusement of opposing pitcher and future Hall of Famer Christy Mathewson. Burke also helped off the field. He became something of Herman's assistant. When a player was released, Burke delivered the message straight from the owner's office to the player. 
Former Reds manager Joe Tinker, after being fired from the team in 1913, told the Cleveland Plain Dealer he believed Burke spied on players away from the ballpark and reported his findings directly to the owner. Tinker, by the way, is a Hall of Fame player who essentially started his playing career in Montana. And that's something Jeremy will talk about in a second. During Cincinnati's off-season, Burke stopped by Herman's side at social events. He accompanied the owner on trips to the World Series, performed at the owner's country club, and made those three appearances with sitting presidents. His banter with President Wilson caught the attention of the New York Times, which wrote about the exchange on October 16, 1913. After Wilson good-naturedly ribbed Burke for Cincinnati's lackluster showing in the season standings, the mascot remarked about the president to the paper, you would make some good baseball manager. Simply put, people like to be around Brownie Burke. His showmanship and general gregariousness would eventually lead to Burke's departure from the Reds, and with the financial and moral support of Herman, his pursuit of an acting career. Success followed Burke during stage productions. One review called his turn in The Forest Fire, quote, sagely and vivaciously enacted a work of art. It's a pretty good review. But his next grand move came in a different sort of theater. Despite falling five inches short of the U.S. Army's height requirements, he angled to enlist during World War I. In letters on file at the Baseball Hall of Fame and quoted by Saber, Burke wrote Herman, quote, I'm going to telegraph Montana Senator Thomas Walsh again, and if he can't do anything to hasten my going into service, I'm going to pull my freight and go to Canada, where I'm pretty certain I will be given my chance. Burke was enlisted into the 19th, 90th Infantry Division Headquarters Detachment on June 1, 1918, and began serving overseas a few weeks later. In typical fashion, he made a quick impression. American Legion magazine wrote in a 1940 article that, quote, every soldier and the Germans in Burn Castle knew about the little fellow. After the war, Robert Ripley of Ripley's Believe It or Not credited Burke as, quote, the shortest man during World War I serving in the AES, according to the Helena Independent Record. Burke returned home to Montana a hero and later continued his acting career in California. His run of luck, though, came to an end during the Great Depression, and he died in 1931 at age 38, broke, and mostly anonymous. The Cincinnati papers made no mention of his passing. Montana was a different story. Papers in Helena, Billings, and Missoula covered his death, because after all, Burke was the first native son to make the majors. He arrived at least five years before St. Louis Cardinals pitcher and Cascade-born Reese Steamboat Williams, who has long been recognized as the state's trailblazer to the big leagues. Quote, alas, such an opportunity for baseball immortality eluded Brownie Burke, wrote Saber, and he is largely forgotten today. During his half decade in baseball, however, his wide-ranging role with the Reds made him one of the sport's most public figures. By all evidence, it was a very happy existence, one a turn-of-the-century boy from a remote, working-class background could only dream of, end quote. That's the thing about Montana baseball stories that we found when working on this project. They don't always make Ken Burns documentaries. They don't always end up on the pages of Sports Illustrated magazine, and they don't always lead off SportsCenter. But like the state itself, they tend to reveal overlooked or underappreciated treasures. These stories help create the fabric of the game and provide a window into not only the history of baseball, but the state of Montana itself. Jeremy 
our researcher on the project is going to talk about one of our favorite stories from the book, which is the 1900 Montana State Professional League. 